Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by author Bianca Murray to discuss her brand new novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh, about three women whose lives intersect in a post-apartheid South Africa. Don't worry, no spoilers today. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in those show notes. The link will take you to all the books, movies, articles, and whatever else gets discussed on the show. Also in the show notes are links to our social media accounts, so you can stay connected to the stacks. Want more of the stacks? Head over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the stacks to be part of our bookish community. Patreon allows listeners to help support this show while earning cool perks, including our virtual book club, where we video chat to dissect the most recent Stacks book club picks. If you're interested in being part of the Stacks pack, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review this show wherever you get your podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Bianca Murray about her brand new novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh. All right, everyone. I am here today with Bianca Murray. She's the author of If You Want to Make God Laugh, which just came out um, in in July. So thank you so much for being here, Bianca. Thank you for having me, Tracy. It's wonderful to be chatting with you. I'm so excited. So we're going to dive right in. We always start here. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about your book? Right. So the book has three female protagonists, each of them in a moment of crisis in their lives, Zodwa's a young Zulu woman, uh, Ruth is an older ex-stripper, and Delilah is an older excommunicated nun. And it tells the story of how their lives come together, and it's set against the backdrop of South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy and the onset of the AIDS pandemic. God, you're so good at that. <laughs> it's like you've been on book tour or something. Well, you, you get taught this elevator pitch, you know, you get told you need to be able to do this. And I'm terrible at it because they say, pretend what you would tell Oprah if you were ever in the elevator with her. I would be so busy fangirling that right. I would not be able to pitch anything to That's her. That's right. You'd be like, <laughs> Oprah, I love you so much. Tell me about you. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. Well, so you're from South Africa. And yes. I kind of want to know where you got the idea for this book. Right. So I was born and raised in South Africa, um, lived there until my late 30s. 
Uh, and we're in 2003, as the um, AIDS pandemic was starting to pick up steam in South Africa, there were two things that made me volunteer in Soweto with HIV AIDS orphans and their caregivers. And the one was a young boy called Encorsti Johnson. He uh, stood up at the 13th AIDS conference and took on South African president at that time, uh, Tabu Mbeki, who was an AIDS denialist. And this kid was just phenomenal. He was mm. a powerhouse. I, I almost can't believe he's already been passed away now for almost 20 years. Wow. And he inspired me to work with AIDS orphans in Soweto. And also someone who was very close to me died uh, in 2000. Uh, and she never told me that she was HIV positive because the stigma was so great. Um, and the two of them together gave HIV a really human face for me. And so I started volunteering in Soweto for 10 years. And these women in Soweto were so generous with their time and their stories. And they told me so much about their lives uh, and the struggles that they'd faced. And they asked me to find a way of sharing these stories because they were unable to. And so that became the seed many, many years ago. And then I started working on it uh, in 2017. Okay. Well, and this is your second book. Um, your first book is Hum If You Don't Know the Words. And that was like really acclaimed and people loved it and people were like obsessed with you. So what <laughs> happened? How did you approach like writing a second book? Were you anxious at all? Were you nervous? Like, did it, did it stop you in your tracks or anything like that? Or did this story, you were just like, I have to tell this story. I don't care if it sucks. Like what? It doesn't suck, but <laughs> you know, like, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a bit of all of that. So I heard, you know, from other writers that you write a novel and if you have any kind of success with it, then you feel kind of debilitated uh, and paralyzed with writing the next book. Um, and I was very optimistic that the first book would do well. So I was anticipating all this wonderful, debilitating success, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, didn't happen. Um, <laughs> the book did well, but it wasn't like a New York Times bestseller or anything. But what I did write, and I say this to new writers, is as soon as I finished writing that book, I started on the next book mm. um, because you just have to keep that momentum going. And as well, these imaginary friends, you know, have been talking to me for a long time. They're kind of insistent, you know, they tap you on the shoulder and they, and they want you to tell their stories. So for me, there was never um, any thought about, you know, giving myself some time to regroup. It was just finish one book and go straight into the next book. And I sold this book to my publisher based on three chapters and a synopsis. Hmm. So whereas my first novel took three years to write, I suddenly had six months in which to write the second novel. So that doesn't give you much time to mess around. No, that's so fast. Yeah. And then, you know, so you write the first draft in six months and then you get another six months to work with your editor and pretty much rewrite the book from scratch all over again. Oh my gosh. And is that, does it, that feel like a lot of pressure or does it feel kind of like a natural timeline? Uh, in some ways it's a bit, you know, pressurized, which is good because creative people tend to be creative exactly when they're not supposed to. Right. And as soon as they're <laughs> able to sit down to work, they suddenly find a million distractions. So it was good because it kind of, you know, forced me to focus. But at the same time, you know, there's that saying, if you, you never want to work a day in your life, do something that you love. Right. And for me, writing is what I love. It's, it's what I would, I do it in my spare time. I do it in the evenings. I do it on weekends. So it didn't feel, you know, like, like hard work for me. It just felt like getting to know these characters. And how did you know you wanted to write? 
I started, I wrote my first book when I was seven okay. years old. Um, I think as soon as I disco- discovered the magic of reading, I wanted to be able to do the alchemy of writing. And so, you know, it was never a thought for me. But at the same time, in South Africa, when I was going to university, you couldn't study creative writing. Okay. Uh, and so I couldn't, you know, study that. I did a degree in English and I've just written my whole life. Okay. So this has always been. Did you ever have other jobs? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I was a waitress. There's one story that I told in a writing group that was quite hilarious because of the misunderstanding, <laughs> because of my accent. They said, write down your first five jobs and then we had to do a writing exercise about it. So I said, data capturer. And Uh-oh. right. So <laughs> people were like, whoa, that's an amazing job. How did you do that? And I went, well, with the computer. And they were like, you did that with a computer? And after five minutes, I realized that there was a misunderstanding. So some people heard a dog capturer, like going out and capturing yeah. dogs. And some people thought I said, daughter, as in your daughter. Yeah. And I mean, South Africa, we just call it data as opposed to data. So I, I had so many, so many different jobs. I worked in insurance <laughs> for many years. I was a consultant. I ran my own corporate training company. So, and this is good for writers because you, you get so much different experience, you know? Right. How did you transition or when did you transition? Because you're, you're a professional writer now. You Right. So I am a professional writer. I still, um, I teach now as well, which is absolutely wonderful because you just learn so much about the craft when you're teaching other people. But my husband and I moved from Johannesburg to Toronto in 2012. Uh, and then I did the um, certificate program with the School of Continuing Studies, the creative writing program in Toronto. And that's when I started writing my first novel while I was doing that. And then when I sold it, I was then able to become a full-time writer. Got it. And how do you make time for writing when you're also teaching? The teaching is its kind of once a week, so it's not too strenuous. Uh, And then it's critiquing and things like that. So I find that it doesn't interrupt the writing process. It just kind of makes it uh, better, actually. It makes me more focused. But I think for teachers who are full-time teachers, it must be incredibly difficult. I speak to a lot of writers as well who have other full-time jobs and who have children. And my mind just boggles at their commitment because some of these women will wake up at 4 a.m. to write. And my brain is just not functioning at 4 a.m. Yeah. No, we talk to all sorts of writers on this podcast. And you'd be shocked at all the different ways. And like some people really thrive with the pressure. And some people have carved out like very specific routines. And I I at least am shocked because I kind of just thought, you know, a writer writes. And I never really thought about making time for writing until I started asking people how they wrote their book. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, you have eight other jobs. There's there's so much dedication with a lot of these writers. I just find, you know, I'm able to sit down and write at a certain time. And then I sit down and I stare at the blank screen. And suddenly I decide I need to clean my house or walk my dog, uh, which is how I then end up writing at midnight because somehow the pressure's off. And then I feel like it's fine because I don't have to be writing. And do you have writing like rituals or snacks and beverages or a place that you like to write? Like, can you write in your home? Do you go out into the world? Yeah, I'm all over the place with that. You know, sometimes I get cabin fevered. 
Uh, and then I do like to go out into a cafe and write, but it depends on the kind of scene I'm writing. So if it's a very emotional scene, very taxing, I definitely don't want to be in public when I'm writing that because I cry mm. uh, when I write certain things. And other times um, I'm lucky to have a little desk of my own and I sit there and write. My major routine is that I have a vision board. So when I start to write a novel, I picture my characters find pictures of them, cut them out, find pictures of the setting, and I stick it all up on my vision board so that when I'm writing, I'm, I'm looking at these characters, I'm looking at the places, and, and that I help find very much because I'm a very visual writer. I see things very cinematically. Mm. And then also something that I can't do without is my writing groups. So I have a few writing groups, and every single page I write goes out to them. They critique it. It comes back, and I rewrite so mm. I don't write a whole first draft and then rewrite it. I'm constantly redrafting as I'm going along. Interesting. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
Okay. We normally, when we do these episodes, I talk about the book a ton in the beginning and we kind of like jumped ahead to talk about your process, which I love, but I do <laughs> want to talk a little bit about the book because people are going to be like, this woman's so interesting, but I have no idea what her book's about. Yeah. Um, so, so you kind of give us the synopsis. It's about these three women whose lives intersect and it's like kind of right immediately after um, the end of apartheid. And it kind of this beginning is that first election in 1994 in South Africa. And I just kind of wonder as someone who is South African and you now are an expat, you live in Canada, what sort of stuff do you feel like is the most misunderstood or misconstrued or that people don't fully grasp about the the time of apartheid and especially kind of the end of apartheid and the beginning of, you know, the ANC being in charge of the country and kind of like that transition with Nelson Mandela and all of that? Right. You know, I've traveled extensively with my two books and spoken to a lot of people. And the misunderstandings depend on who you speak to. Mm. You know, there are a, a lot of Canadians know about apartheid. Um, you know, they know the intricacies of it. Uh, people in the U.S. not so much. So people <laughs> don't realize that it was legalized racism. Many people don't realize that the laws that were in place um, you know, it, it was legal to treat people in these horrific ways. Um, people also don't realize the kind of panic in South Africa amongst white people when apartheid ended. Um, you know, a lot of white people thought, okay, this is the beginning of the civil war because we didn't know Nelson Mandela. Because of apartheid, um, the press were never allowed to publish photographs of him. Um, until sort of, I think, the, like 1990, we'd been told that he was this terrorist. He was coming for us. Um, and so there was kind of mass panic amongst white people in South Africa. They were stockpiling food and water. Uh, and then, you know, this old man came out of the prison gates uh, and he was just so inclusive and so forgiving and preached about moving on. Um, and so, you know, people don't realize how, how easy it would have been at that point in South Africa's history for it to tip over into civil war. And yet those were the most amazing years in South Africa's history. That's so interesting. Did you find that in writing the story and now having done your book tour that people were were surprised by any of that stuff? Like, do, have you had any reactions that have been surprising to you or any pushback that you got about this book? Yeah. I mean, people have been... You know, people have said to me, I wasn't ever aware of this. I didn't realize that things were this bad in South Africa. Um, some people in South Africa were angry with me for writing the book. Hmm. Uh, I got some pushback with people saying that I had um, sort of sold out to the Afrikaner, which is, you know, white people in South Africa who speak Afrikaans. Uh, and that isn't true at all because I am half kind of Afrikaner. You know, my Heritage goes back to the Brits, the French, and the Afrikaners. Uh, and for me, it's not about selling anybody out. It's about just owning our history. It's about taking ownership for what happened in the past uh, and exploring that because it's only once we do that that we can make sure these things don't ever happen again. So the, the feedback has been very varied and, and, and extremely interesting and, and most often very gratifying. Yeah. Is it hard when you get kind of negative pushback? Like, is that hard for you or do you, have you built up kind of a thicker skin around it? I, I don't, it depends on what the pushback's around. You know, if people say I'm selling out white people in South Africa, that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> uh, that's like, yeah, yeah. Um, that doesn't bother me. There's 
certain things that, that do bother me, you know, if people misunderstand something. So, you know, I had a reviewer um, in Amsterdam who posted that the book was incredibly racist and she can't believe uh, that the book was published because I use racist words in the book. And that's very upsetting because there's a big difference between a racist book and a book that explores racism. Right. Um, and, you know, there was one reviewer recently who said about my most recent book that I wrote the young black female character in the third voice because I viewed her as less than the two white characters who I wrote in the first person. And that was incredibly, incredibly upsetting because that, you know, was not my intention at all. Uh, so, so sometimes, you know, when you get that kind of feedback, it, it, it can it can kind of stop you in your tracks and, and you know, upset you. Right. But you just kind of, as, as writers, we are the most, we have to be so sensitive because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we wear our heart on our sleeves and, and we're so sensitive to things. But at the same time, you have to build up like kind of a tough exterior. But right. sometimes, you know, the criticism is necessary and sometimes um, it's welcoming and sometimes it makes you a better writer. So I, I try and be as open to, to feedback and criticism as possible. Yeah, I, I actually am curious about, so the characters of Ruth and Delilah are both, they're, well, they're Afrikaner, both of them, and are half, I guess. And so my assumption is that they're, they are a little bit more closely, closely represented to what you experienced, perhaps. Am I being, assum- I don't want to assume. No, it just, okay. I mean, there's, South Africa has so many different people. And right. so, you know, there were some people in South Africa that were like that, some who weren't. So definitely they're inspired by some of my own experience right. uh, and experience of people I know, definitely. So then uh, uh, how do you say the, the other woman's name? Zodwa. Zodwa. So for yes. her, how, was it challenging for you to write that part? How did you kind of like put yourself in that? And then I guess also, why did you choose to write her in the third person instead? Right. So Zodwa for me is the composite of so many of these women that I um, – dealt with in Soweto who, you know, who I was either helping them or their children or um, family members that they were looking after who were affected by the AIDS pandemic. And, you know, these, these women's experience was so varied, but what amazed me about them was their strength. Some of them had worked as maids during apartheid. You know, they had been left behind by their own mothers in the Bantu homelands while their mothers came to Johannesburg to work and send money home. And for them to have grown up without mothers and then suddenly they become young mothers and not only are they dying from, you know, from HIV, their children are suddenly dying from HIV. And you sit there and you are almost numb with shock about the amount of trauma that these women have endured. Mm. And also they're living in desperate poverty. It's a very patriarchal society. Many of them don't have a voice. And here they are using their voice to share these experiences. So for me, writing Zodra, she kind of flowed from me in the same way that beauty in my first book flowed from me because I felt like I was channeling these women. And the reason I wrote Zodra in the third person was pretty much the opposite reason as what this woman thought in her review. And that was because, you know, the character Zod was 17 years old. She has a limited experience of the world. She's lived most of her life in this tiny little rural village in this Bantu homeland before coming to the outskirts of Johannesburg. And when you write a character from the first person, you're accessing the language they have access to. 
you know, they will compare things to things that they themselves have personally experienced. Uh, and Zodwa's experience of the world is very limited. And I didn't want her narrative to be so limited because to me, she's the best character in the book. She's so strong. She's just so amazing. And, and the things that she overcomes. And I wanted to give her a larger voice than what she would have had in the first person if I'd written her authentic as this, you know, I didn't want her to be this kind of country bumpkin, right. you know, character. Um, I felt like that would have stereotyped her. And, you know, so that's why I chose the third person because it allows the writer, um, you know, to tell a much larger story than the character has access to. But yeah, so that, that was kind of misunderstood. That's so interesting. And that's something that you definitely think about when you write a book. Like when you started, did you know for sure Zadwa would be in third person? Did you know that Delilah and Ruth would be in first person or is that no, something that develops? Yeah, that's the thing about writing. You know, when you're finding your way into a character's voice, you try everything. Um, and, you know, for example, with my first novel, Beauty, who ended up being first person present tense, was initially in letters to her daughter, uh, Ruth and Delilah, I tried in third person, I tried in first person, and then you're still figuring out, is it past tense, is it present tense? So, you know, it's playing around with, with a lot of voices for the characters and still, until something sticks and you have this aha moment and you go, yes, this is the right voice for this character. Right. And how did you name them? So, well, Ruth and Delilah, um, they are kind of the opposite of their names. Right. Uh, in, in I love that part ways. of the book when that comes yes. out. But I, right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, you expect Delilah to be all wild, uh, and she isn't. She's the excommunicated nun, and you expect Ruth, you know, to be this kind of obedient kind of character, and she isn't. She's crazy and wild. Uh, and uh, they also name themselves. Characters tend to just name themselves to me. It's not like I sit there for ages going, is this a Deborah? Is this a you know, Stephanie or whatever, the, the names come to me very quickly. Uh, and Zodwa also just, she just, the name came to me very quickly. So it's not that I had to play around with, with those names. And what sort of stuff were you reading or listening to or watching while you were writing this book, either for inspiration or to like check out of the work? The books that I read for research were um, about being aid workers uh, in Rwanda because Ruth um, uh, Delilah is an aid worker in Rwanda at the beginning of the story. There was also a South African exotic dancer from the 70s. Uh, her name was Glenda Kemp, and she used to dance naked with a python, which was considered beyond scandalous uh, in that period of South Africa's history. So she, you know, gave me the idea for Ruth. Uh, Ruth's life's not the same as her life. Um, but I tend to read everything and anything and watch anything when I'm writing. And I know a lot of writers who either don't read at all when they're writing or they will only read books in that particular genre mm -hmm. or based in a certain place. And for me, that's not it. I can read any kind of book and just read the most beautiful sentence in that book or just be jarred by something in that book that'll help inform my own writing and make it better and challenge me. So I was, I was reading everything and anything then. I'm, I'm first and foremost a reader before I'm a writer, so I read a lot. All right. I meant to ask you this, actually, when we were talking about apartheid. For people who want to learn more about that time in South African history, do you have any books that you recommend that are particularly insightful or interesting? 
I always recommend Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Oh, so good. Yeah, it's so, so good. <laughs> and because it's like essays, you know, he's able to really get into the nitty gritty of things and he's able to explain things in a way that you can't do with fiction. Because yeah. the minute you're giving like historical context in fiction and, you know, it, it starts to read like a textbook. And so you're not able to do that. So his essays just gave such amazing context to his upbringing, to his life. And of course, it's his own account, which is so important because, you know, as, as a white woman writing from black women's perspectives, I don't feel comfortable doing it. And I don't feel like I should be doing it. I feel like the own voices movement is so important. I feel like young black women should be telling their own stories. Uh, and that's especially why Trevor Noah's story is just so compelling because the fact that he was born a crime, that he had a black mother and a white father, and that was illegal um, in South Africa at that time. It's, it's just such a compelling, compelling book. Yeah, it's so good. I read it and I listened to it because it's so good. Well, um, he's so funny and he does yeah. accents and he, you know, he's just so personable. And yeah, I would, I would recommend that any day. And then, you know, there's a whole host of young South African um, writers who are writing such good work and it frustrates me that I can't recommend their work because it's not available uh, in North America. So, you know, it's kind of being in conversations with their publishers and trying to get these books available here so that, you know, we we can be reading these, these especially young black women um, whose stories are, are so compelling and they need to be told around the world. Right. Let me ask you this, because you said that you don't love that you are like that you write these stories or that you're, right. you know, you feel like other people should be writing their own voice stories. Why do you write them then if you feel that? The first book, I started to just write from the young uh, white girl's perspective. She's nine mm-hmm. years old. The Soweto uprising has happened. Uh, she loses her parents. And of course, she's a very privileged, bratty child because like so many children in South Africa, she's been brainwashed to be racist. Right. Uh, teachers, ministers, everyone tells her she's the supreme race. And so when you tell the story from just that perspective, it's just kind of this racist story about a privileged young girl. And you don't see both sides of the story. And for me, this is where the fascinating part about stories comes in. It's that, you know, perspective. Because you could be watching the same thing play out with somebody next to you and afterwards you will give two totally different accounts of what Mm -hmm. happened. Uh, And so with Beauty, she was inspired by my childhood caregiver, Eunice Ngogodo, who, you know, um, lived through apartheid um, and she inspired me so, so much. And she always told me these stories and I wanted to pay tribute to her. That is how I wrote that first story. It was to pay tribute to Eunice. And then with the second book, Writing Zodwa, was because of these young women, you know, who hadn't had a proper education, who were living in uh, squatter camps, who just didn't have a voice. And they told me these stories and said, we would like to share these stories. And so I felt almost like a conduit. You know, they were telling these stories through me and I was channeling them. But of course, I would have way have preferred each of these young women to sit down and write their own stories. And, you know, to that end, I've started an initiative in South Africa called the Unison Gogodo Own Voices Initiative, where we're setting up um, creative writing um, instructions for young girls so that they can learn how to write and mentorship programs. 
um, and access to publishers so that they can in the future tell their own stories. That's amazing. I love that so much. And I love that you're, you know, a part of making sure that these voices are getting heard. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I feel like if those of us who are privileged enough to tell these stories need to use our platform to boost other voices. Um, you know, I would hate to think that with my books having been published, I've taken away an opportunity from a person of color from telling their own stories. And so, you know, it's important to use that platform um, to create opportunities for other writers. Right. For people who love your book, if you want to make God laugh, what are some other books that you might recommend that are either in the same vein, in conversation with, you would think kind of fit together nicely? They don't have to be fiction, just like some things that you think might might connect with right. other readers. So there's a book called We Are All the Same, uh, and it's written by um, an American journalist who was in South Africa uh, and spent a lot of time with this young Nkosi Johnson and his caregiver um, who became his adoptive mother, Gail Johnson. And this book is phenomenal in that it gives you the historic uh, background to South Africa and tells you why HIV thrived the way it did at mm. the period of time in South Africa's history when it did. And it also looks at this young man, call him a young man. He was 11 years old. He was 12 when he died. Uh, and this book will just break your heart, but it just is such a necessary read. Another book, you know, that looks at HIV AIDS is Rebecca Mackay's Great Believers, but that looks at it from the U.S. perspective and in terms of gay men as opposed to, you know, the South African perspective. Um, those, are, those are two books that I really recommend to, to everybody. Awesome. I love that so much. Well, here's my real, I guess my real last, second to last question for you is, do you know what comes next for you and your writing? Are, have you started on book three as soon as you finished book two? Definitely. I actually finished book three. Oh my goodness. And I'm, <laughs> I'm now in the process of rewriting it. Uh, because, you know, the first draft is always just getting to know the characters, getting right. to know the plot. But for me, it's a bit of a um, change. I decided after the first two books were quite emotionally taxing books to write. Um, and so I decided to have a bit of fun. And I've changed to a psychological thriller. Ooh. Uh, or I think they would call it a dom domestic suspense these days. Uh, and so that's what I wrote just for a change. I think it's Nice for writers to challenge themselves with different genres and different formats. You know, I look at uh, Roxane Gay, who is able to write novels, essays, short stories, uh, comic books. I mean, it's just, it absolutely fascinates me. And I can't write a short story to save my life <laughs> uh, because I am way too wordy. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'm still going to write a novel, but let me change genres. So that's what I'm busy on at the moment. I love that. That's so exciting. And then my last question for you is if you could have anyone dead or alive read If You Want to Make God Laugh, who would you choose? Oh, that's such a good one. You know what? For me, it's actually most important for it to be read by these young women who inspired the novel. Okay. Uh, and they're kind of, you know, most people don't know who they are. They don't know their names. They don't know their circumstances. But I know them. Um mm. And for me, it would be amazing if they could read it uh, in terms of – and I, I, want, I want Eunice to read it as well. That would be amazing. And, you know, I would like President – well, he's now ex-president, Tabu Mbeki, 
to read it as well because he was just this AIDS denialist who went on record saying HIV does not cause AIDS. Um, and he, his stance led to hundreds of thousands of people dying in South Africa. And I would really like for him to read it so that he, you know, could get a bit of perspective from the people who are suffering from this, from this disease. Those are so many good answers. I want them all to read it too. Uh, <laughs> well, Bianca, thank you so much for being here. We're going to link in the show notes to Bianca's social media as well as where you can get the book. It is out in the world. Again, it's called If You Want to Make God Laugh. Bianca, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for chatting with me, Tracy. Of it's been course. lovely. And we will see the rest of you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you again to Bianca Murray for joining us on the show. I also want to say thank you to Katie McKee and the folks over at Putnam Books for sending a copy of If You Want to Make God Laugh our way. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you got your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. <laughs>